Hey, I want to start this morning. One of the things when it comes to having fortitude, I think we need to be reminded is that uh, we need to be humble. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. ESV says proper time. I like NIV where it says due time. Due time is always a reminder that it's not my time. Right? It doesn't play out the way I want or the way I always ask even sometimes. But God's will always plays out. It says, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's one of the greatest promises in the Bible. As we've gathered this morning, why have we gathered? Because he cares for us. The promises that he hears. And I think that's just really important. So let's pray this morning before we start. Father, as we come, it is wise to humble ourselves. We recognize that we can't fix the things we see wrong. And we recognize half the time, Father, we can't even fix the things in us that we see are wrong. But we can humble ourselves. We can come to you and make ourselves available to your grace. And as we do that, you're freed up to do what you do really well. And Lord, we pray this morning that you'll have ample opportunity, that there will be open doors in our hearts towards you, that you can speak individually, corporately, in a marriage, in a family, that uh, you can speak a good word this morning. And we seek you for what only you can do. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. All right, let's start. And um, when we're talking about this morning, Peter's going to get us on to the topic of spiritual warfare, right? And that's a, a topic that Peter, I think, learned something about. I think he knows a little bit about it. Uh, spiritual warfare is a topic that became very real to Peter. Uh, it was something that, if you remember his dialogues with Jesus, he was kind of in the mode of, well, that's a good suggestion. Lord, let me tell you what I think. Have you ever done that with the Lord? Right? Hey, that's, that's not bad, Jesus. I'll tell you what, pretty good outline. I'll take it from here. Right? You ever done that to the Lord? And then, you know, just, yeah, it goes bad. It's kind of a wipeout thing. And so Peter kind of learned something there. Spiritual uh, warfare, when it happened to him, he, I want to suggest he forgot in the darkness what he had learned in the light. Right? And that's a very good principle for us is don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. And Peter did. And the trial and stuff, he, he broke and he buckled. And here's he even been warned. Remember, Jesus said to him that, uh, hey, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but that Jesus would be praying for him. Right. So it's even worse when you've been warned ahead of time and then you you botch it again. You know, but the thing about it is when someone's been bushwhacked like that, right, if you if you've been out there and you've been uh, seriously bushwhacked in your life by spiritual warfare, then you know what I'm talking about. The thing about that is that. Um, You know how to warn others not to let them make the same mistake you made. And that's what Peter's doing here in chapter 5. And that's what we'll encounter this morning. So let's look at what he says. And what he says is this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's go back to the beginning and start with what Peter is uh, unpacking for this church. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This admonition here to be sober-minded, to be watchful, again, I think, illustrates Peter's failure at the trial. And I think it colors this whole epistle. Um, He was not careful and he got sifted, right? We know that story well. And so he's saying, hey, I made a mistake. I wasn't paying attention. I want to encourage you to pay better attention than what I did. Peter has a much fuller understanding at this point in his life, especially of who and what he and the church that he's writing to are up against. And notice there's no fear in the description, right? He's not writing uh, to say we have to be shaking in our boots or quivering in our voice or our hands. What Peter's suggesting is that we need to be vigilant and measured uh, much in the same way. I was trying to think of an illustration. You know, when you go to eastern Washington, right, we know there's rattlesnakes over there. You use a little more caution and a little more uh, discretion when you're in eastern Washington than you are in western Washington. Now, in western Washington, you don't go running through the woods because there's blackberry bushes, right? Use discretion now. Eastern Washington, you had to watch out for rattlesnakes. You don't go running through the brush in eastern Washington, right? Unless you're in armor, steel armor, right? And, and it, Peter's suggesting the same thing is use wisdom and discretion. When you sense something's up, when you sense something else is going on more than just the circumstances themselves, you can feel the darkness, you can feel the push of that, then exercise caution. Well, what he's saying is just because they're spiritual for it doesn't mean you don't live the Christian life. As a matter of fact, it's in living the Christian life that you encounter spiritual warfare. Just try to take Jesus seriously and watch what happens. You ever said, hey, Lord, I want to do this for you, and then everything fell apart? Or, hey, Lord, I want to do this for you, and then all heck broke loose? And you're like, wait, what happened? I was trying to serve the Lord. Yes, and he has an opponent who doesn't want you to serve him, and he'll do whatever it takes to stop you living out what God's will for your life is. He's very good at it. Read the stories in the Bible. He's stopped a lot of people better than us. What do you encounter when you try to take the Lord seriously? You encounter what the Bible calls warfare. You encounter an enemy. Just the question is, okay, well, who are we encountering? Uh, Peter listed up here. He says, your adversary, the devil. If you look at those words, the Greek word for adversary, and edikos is the word, uh, an opponent in a lawsuit, okay? Literally an opposing lawyer. So some of us have been in court and had a prosecuting attorney or a prosecuting lawyer who has opposed our uh, opinion of what we're trying to accomplish. And we recognize those guys can be really slick. They can take the law and parse out little pieces you never thought of or take your statements and twist things you never uh, were really actually thinking to the point where all of a sudden you're backpedaling because they're making you say something you, in, you weren't really saying. Right? That's the idea here of adversary. If you look at devil... You understand these words, Greeks is Diablos, and Hebrew is Satan. That's where we get those, those names from. But it literally means slanderer. One of the things that we try to coach here strongly at Northview is not to slander each other, not to 
rip each other's reputations. Why? Because slander is not the language of heaven. Okay? Slander is the language of hell. And when we participate in that, we engage in the language that is the language of our enemy. Now, if you put this together, another way you could read uh, this verse would be, so be sober-minded, be watchful or alert, for you have a prosecuting attorney who's going to use the law and level charges of slander against you. Okay? And you say, oh my goodness, what would that be like? You're stupid, you're dumb, you can't make it, God's not going to use you. Are you kidding me? Seriously? You think you're forgiven? What a joke. That's not going to happen. God only uses people who are perfect. You remember back there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, nice try. You Don't even start. Anybody ever heard those words? You're going, how do, can I peg it that close? Well, I know how he lies. Right? That's how he lies to me. And he lies to us the same way. And so we've, Peter's saying, hey, we've got to be careful. Further, it says, your adversary then, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone who he can devour. Now, I think that's a weird phrase. Prowls around like a roaring lion. Because when you think of somebody prowling, you don't think of them making a lot of noise, right? When we think of prowlers, for example, uh, people who want to break into our homes, they don't walk up in your neighbor and go, hello, hi, I want to break into your home. Anybody there? Right? I mean, that's not to their advantage. They don't walk around with flashlights and, hey, I'm here, right? What do they do? They stalk, right? They wear black. They come in silently. They try to break in silently. They try to take something. They try to leave without anybody really knowing. So why would Peter say, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour? You know, if you think about that, that's even dumb if you're a lion, right? Lions don't go walking, rah, rah, hey, little animals, I'm here to eat you. Come to daddy. Right? That what would they, they they all flee, right? That's not a helpful strategy. So why would Peter say he prowls about like a roaring lion? Well, let me uh, walk us through that because it there's a clue here to a very important spiritual principle. All right, so I'm going to take you to Africa. Here we go to Africa. All right, you've always wanted to go there, and here's the lush green savanna. All right, problem is we didn't have a color photo- photograph, so now it's black and white. But use your imagination, all right? And there's some vegetation there in the savanna. In that savanna, kids, we have some cute antelope. Oh, okay. There they are out munching on the grass, just chomping away, doing antelope things that antelope do and having a very fine uh, Sunday afternoon. They're just enjoying the whole thing, right? Also in Africa, you have lions. And particularly if you have a group of lions, it's called a pride of lions. And the pride of lions looks and sees antelope and they're not thinking of munching on the grass. They're thinking of munching on the antelope, right? So the lions have to come up with a strategy of how we are going to catch these antelope because if we sit there and we roar, which way are the antelope going to go? They're going to bolt away from them, right? So what the lions do is they come up with an ingenious strategy. In every pride of lions, there's an old lion, worn-out lion. We'll call him Old Gummer, okay? Old Gummer can't run anymore. He's arthritic, doesn't have any claws anymore. He can pat you, right? And uh, can't chew on you, just kind of thing. And so Old Gummer can't really do much. But the one thing Old Gummer can still do is Old Gummer can roar. And so what they do by stealth and strategy is they take Old Gummer, they walk him around the bottom or on other brush, and they station him across from the antelope. And on cue, when the signal's right, a signal's given, and on cue, Old Gummer begins to roar. When you're an antelope, 
and you hear a roar coming from the bushes, what do you by nature and instinct do? You go the other way. When they go the other way, they run straight into what? The jaws of death. You ever had Satan tell you, run, run, God's not going to save you. He's not going to spare you. Run. You better get away. And as you run, you get clobbered. What should have the antelopes done? They should have run towards the fear. If they had run towards the fear, they couldn't get hurt because Gummer can't catch them. Okay? Gummer's sitting over there. Wave at them as they go by. Okay, there we go. Right? Can't do any damage to them. All right? they, are, they should have run towards the roar. And I think that's a really important spiritual principle because we get caught in the same thing. And so often we run into the jaws of spiritual death because we're listening to the roaring of the enemy. Jesus wants us to know that he has defeated Satan, that Satan is a defeated foe. That's what Peter's trying to let this church know. When you go to the cross, it said Jesus had, when he was hanging on the cross, he received the sour wine. And then it says, he, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When it finished, did not just mean, okay, I'm up here and I'm, my life is done, I'm done. What he was saying is, I have come to show the world that I do exactly as my fathers wanted. I've been here from the moment, get go, word one, to do the plan of God. And now that my life is spent, that is finished. What was finished? Well, <clears throat> Satan was known as the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. He's the prince of this world, according to John 14.30. But on the cross, when Jesus said it is finished, those titles were stripped from, stripped from him by Jesus' death and resurrection from the cross. He no longer had that power or capacity. You know, when John, John was Jesus' best friend, the Apostle John, when he encountered the risen and resurrected and glorified Jesus, it says this. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. This is Jesus' best friend. When he walked into the resurrected, glorified Christ, he went, boom. And you see that all the time in the Bible. Daniel, boom. Ezekiel, boom. When they run into the risen Christ, they're like, bam, on the floor, out, right? And it says, when I saw him, but then he laid his hand on him and said, waking him up, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died. But behold, I'm alive forevermore. And then he says this, and I have the keys to death in Hades. There was a a transaction that occurred when Jesus said it is finished, that the keys to death in Hades no longer belong to Satan. Satan no longer controls hell. He no longer controls this planet. Those keys were stripped from him as Jesus died on the cross and then rose again from the dead. And that's what Peter's wanting us to know. Now, does that mean because Satan lost the game that he is done whining about it and roaring about it? No. Have you ever played, right? Uh, We were playing dominoes last night, and there was a lot of whining going on in our group, right? Yeah, yeah, you guys over there. And, uh, and, right? And we're mad because why? We could play a dominoes, and then somebody played, ah, how could you go? Right? And uh, you ever played uh, a game or stuff, and you're winning, and then you're losing. Well, I, right? Or you go golfing. Well, I should have won. That ball should have rolled in the cup, right? And what do we do? We roar, right? Even though we've lost, we're still acting like we won, right? That's exactly what Satan is doing. He is roaring 
like he's still in control of this planet. He's roaring like he still has all the power. He's roaring like he can take away things from you that are precious. And it's all based off the fact that he is absolutely upset because he's lost. But he can't let you know he's lost because he it's very much like playing cards. One of the best hands, especially if you're playing poker, is a bluff. Right? Because in a bluff, I don't have to have any cards in my hand. I just have to make you think I have a better hand than you do. And so I play a strategy game to intimidate you into thinking, you know what? You may have a pair of kings, but that ain't, that ain't nothing, Jack. It's going to fold and buckle. And so you fold your cards. You know what's interesting? When, when you fold your cards, I don't have to show you what's in my hand. How many times has Satan bullied you into something or scared you into something or lied you into something and you thought you could figure it out and you were matching wits with him and said, well, when I figure out what's in his hand, then I can know if I can play it or not. But you buckle before it happens so then he never has to show you what's really there. And you're left with a debris pile, a debris field to walk through. That's what Peter's saying is Satan is roaring why? Because he's a defeated foe. The keys to death and Hades were taken from him. He can no longer control your destiny. Now Jesus controls your destiny. But it doesn't mean he won't roar. Okay? He's going to continue to roar because he's irked and bugged. So Peter's saying, don't buy his lies or his threats. Resist him. It says, resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, Satan is going to continue to roar even though he doesn't have the keys. James uh, chapter 4, 6 and 8 says the same idea to Peter. As Peter says, Therefore God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. There's a critical principle or spiritual principle we have to be aware of. And that principle is this. Before you take on Satan, make sure you're tight with God. Okay? Before you take on Satan, make sure you're tight with God. It says submit to God first, then resist the devil. Why? Because God will tell you how to do it. And you have to follow his plan and his advice if you're going to be successful in it. You follow your own plan or your own advice, you're going to get clobbered. And so Peter's saying, resist him, James would add, first of all, submit to God first, humble yourself, submit to God first. And that may just be a good thing for us this morning as we're talking about, uh, you know, when it comes to humility and pride, where are we on a scale, right? On a scale of zero to 10, let's say I'm no, nowhere close to Jesus right now. That's zero. And on 10, uh, I'm tight with him. Where are you in that scale? You know, one to, one to zero, three to zero, isn't that good? You're pretty open to warfare if you're sitting there. Another, but if you come under, you submit under and say, you know what, I want your will. Even if I'm scared, I know I'm safer under your canopy and umbrella than I am out here. Because I know the enemy will lie to me. I want to pull in tighter. I want to be there. That's a wise move. And this morning, God may be speaking to someone saying, hey, draw closer to me. You're saying, oh, I would love to, but I don't know how to pray and I've messed things up. Here's a great prayer. You know what, Jesus... You and I aren't very close. I thought we would be. I intentioned that we would be, but we're really not. I used to be close to you, but I'm not right now. And I'm, I'm pretty far away. And the truth is, I don't even know how to draw close. Could I just humble myself and admit to you I got lost in my own deal? 
and I need your help to get back to you. I need to draw closer. Could you bring us back in a way that I can't bring us back and let me draw close to you again? You're saying, Steve, that's a you know, third grade level prayer. You know, here's the great thing. God listens to third graders. Did you see that little picture on the screen with the gal with her hands bowed her head? God listens to kids. And last I checked, we were his kids. I don't think God minds if we talk to him like kids. Sometimes we get too sophisticated for our own darn good, right? And we get clobbered because we think we know better, like Peter, than God does. Oh, I want to go back to this just a second. I just heard this morning that um, in Russia, there's now a new law that you cannot share Christ with anyone. And if you do, you'll be thrown in jail. It just came out in the last month. The pressure's on in different parts of the world. They can't, most house churches in Russia are house churches, right? There's a few larger, most of them are house churches. And so they are trying to shut the church down. We don't have that here yet, but the question would be, how do we respond if we're facing that kind of pressure? Peter says, resist being firm in your faith, knowing that others are going through it, and knowing that God gave them grace to go through it, and he will give you grace to go through it as well. Then he says this, and after you have suffered for a little while, by the way, make it very clear. If you don't have this in your grill, in your radar screen yet, get it on your grill, get it in your radar screen right now. The Bible says you'll suffer. Okay? Any preacher that tells you, hey, you can go through life, you don't have to worry about suffering, it'll never happen to you, you can have a glorious life, have all you want, get to heaven, punch the card, we're in, slap high fives with Jesus and walk on in and it's all good. Okay, uh, you're being sold a ticket. Okay, the Bible says over and over the odds are really good we're going to suffer. It doesn't say to what level, but it does say we're going to suffer. And I just want you to know that Peter's pointing this out as well. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself and He uses four words here that I think are really important. It says God will restore, God will confirm, God will strengthen. And God will establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's saying, you want to be scared of somebody? Be scared of God. Start being respectful. Start coming under. Start submitting. Because that's who you really need to be scared of. I want to look at these four words. Because these four words are both present action um, in what God's doing in grace. And they are also future oriented or future action for what he will do. And uh, it's really an amazing picture so these words carry a future sense of god's redeeming work among people first word is restore uh that carries the idea that god will now listen to this give back all that has been lost or taken how much stuff has been lost or taken in your life how much stuff has been stolen by thieves on this planet Just think about that. This carries the idea that God will give back all that's been lost or taken. He will fix what was damaged. He will restore to the original image all that has been tainted by sin and been lost in sin. So very much like uh, we have famous paintings that over the years kind of get covered with grit and grime and and the picture loses its luster. Matter of fact, some that have been stored, you can't hardly tell where the picture is. Or there's some masterpieces that have been painted over completely by another picture. 
right? And if you ever read the restoration process, it's an incredibly exacting science where they go back in and they peel away the false paint and they find the original painting. And they restore that original painting to its original glory. This is what it was supposed to look like. That's exactly what Scripture is saying, what Peter's saying to the church, what Scripture is saying to us. God is going to restore to you all that's been lost or taken. All that's been lost or taken. You will be restored to your original glory, what it was supposed to look like. He is going to do the ultimate restoration project in the universe. That's an amazing thing. The second word is confirm. I grew up in a religious tradition, Catholic, uh, that you're baptized, right? Your parents baptize you in the faith. But when you become a teenager, you go through a process and they take you through what's called catechism and then you go through what's called confirmation. And the idea behind confirmation is your parents had faith to baptize you. Now when you hit 13, this is now your faith. You're going to own it. I missed a few steps in there somewhere, all right? I didn't own nothing. I went through the process, missed the purpose, okay? And I'm not sure that's my fault or the church's fault. I think that was more Steve's fault. But um, I, I missed that whole thing. I did not confirm very well. But the idea is is that uh, your faith is confirmed. It's actually validated. Uh, if you go to a fancy hotel and you go on vacation and you park in the garage underneath, right, you get a ticket. If you take that parking ticket and walk up to the concierge desk, he or she will take that ticket. They will punch it and validate it, and you don't have to pay for the ticket. Well, of course, you pay for the ticket, right? But in this sense, it's talking about validating where you don't have to pay for the ticket. It's talking about when we get to heaven. So when they validate at the hotel, it means you're a legitimate customer of the hotel. We acknowledge that. We validate that ticket. In the same way, when we show up for judgment, that final judgment, when we show up, God will confirm our residency in the kingdom. Just like the concierge will validate the ticket, God will validate us. He will validate our request to enter based on the proclamation of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the most astounding thing about this, all right? All of us want our dad's blessing, okay? I went through most of my life seeking for my dad's blessing. You're a little girl. Little girls adore their daddies, right? They just love their dads. Dads are heroes. We just want dad to look in our eyes and go, you're my girl, right? Okay. Think about this. When we get to heaven and they say, why should you be led into heaven? You say, because of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the universe will say, I want to validate that. That's my son. That's my daughter. Think about that. He will confirm your appointment to eternity. That's what Peter's talking about. Yeah, we're going to go through tough stuff. Yes, we're going to have to go through suffering. But here's the deal. God's going to punch the ticket. Okay? God's going to punch the ticket. He's going to confirm your residency in the kingdom. Third thing is strengthen. This idea is uh, tied to persecution. It means that God will give a greater and sufficient grace that will sustain us. And when we go through uh, persecution, he will give us a grace to go through that. And the idea here is that there are seasons of life. Many of you have been through different seasons of life. Some seasons go really well. Some seasons go really tough. 
And God says that when we go through tough stuff, he will grant a greater grace. Often, and some of you have gotten notes from me, when we've gone through tragedies, I will often write, there are no words for what you just went through. But may Jesus grant a greater grace in the weeks or months ahead that will sustain you in what you have to face. Those are not just words. I have learned that God gives a greater grace. And it says here that he will strengthen us. We have not gone through persecution yet. But do the believers in Russia now suddenly need a greater grace? They do, right? May there come a season where we might need a greater grace? We do. And so God will strengthen, and it means that he will establish us. So when we look at, and by the way, the idea here is he will give us, we've been talking about fortitude. It means he'll give us the guts. He'll give us the will to handle the fortitude, that the trials and tribulations that will come our way because we hold fast to the name of Jesus. Okay, by the way, two things. Don't like Jesus, they don't like the Bible. Right? That's the a, that's a deal. And then the last one is establish. You know, when you go to a restaurant or businesses, a lot of them in the area where, like especially restaurants, you can pick up the menu and they'll have a story of the restaurant, how the restaurant was started and who started it. And it always says, was established in, right? You, ever, you know what I'm talking about, right? You go on business, you see on there, it's established in, right? And like 1969, whoa, that's old, right? Then you see one that was established in like 1858. Was there a planet back then? Wow, how did they, you know? And, right, but you know what I'm talking about? Here it's talking about God will establish um, us. He will set us on a firm foundation. When God establishes us, it says he will establish us in eternity. That's an incredible firm foundation. We will be established uh, for a long time. We will be in business for a long time. As a matter of fact, forever. There's not going to be no ending date to that established in. Okay? Because it will be established in when Jesus returns. That's what Peter's saying. So you look at these four words together, right? God will restore. God will confirm. God will strengthen. God will establish. Peter's talking to a group of people that are they're getting ripped off right now. It's being lost. They were the, the um, exalted exiles. Exiles don't have a lot of power. It says, hang in there. Don't lose your faith. Stay tough. Stay firm. Lean on God's grace. Because in the end, God's going to restore. He's going to confirm. He strengthens. He's going to establish. He does all those presently, but he's really going to do them in the future. And you say, oh, that's great, Steve. Thank you. I'm sure that's going to work for the person next to me. But you don't understand. I've, I've blown it. I, I, I botched it. I botched it big time. And I botched it in ways that other people don't even know. And uh, I kind of missed it. And so I guess that'll, that's great news for others. I hope God can use Norfolk and some of the people in the church. But I really can't look forward to that anymore because, because I blew it. I want to show you a little something in Peter's closing that might encourage you. If you look at the closing, it doesn't read like much. It says, um, hey, by Silvanus. Uh, we know Silvanus. His other name is Silas in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, Silas was running with Paul, remember that? And so Silas or Silvanus becomes a major leader in the early church. He says, uh, he's a faithful brother as I regard him. I've written briefly to you. In other words, Silvanus was his secretary and he wrote down what Peter dictated. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, what he laid out in First Peter. Stand firm in it. In other words, have fortitude, church. Have fortitude. Stick with it. Don't quit. Don't stop halfway through. Stay with the whole process. 
Then she was at Babylon, was likewise chosen, sends you greetings. There's argument about that. Many think that's Peter's wife. And then he says this, and so does Mark, my son. Who's this Mark dude? Peter had a son? Didn't know about that. Let me take you on a little journey of somebody who blew it and got restored by God's grace. So do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Right? And he came to Jesus, hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, oh, keep the commandments. I've done all that. You know, one thing, Jesus can always pinpoint the issue, right? By the way, don't ever duck and weave on, on that because he knows what the issue is with you. But he looked at the guy and said, you know what? You've got a lot of money. Why don't you go give that to the poor and come follow me? It says his face dropped and he was sad. Many people feel that's John Mark. John Mark was the son of Mary, not the Virgin Mary. There were three Marys in Jesus' life. And this Mary was a part of the court of Herod. And this Mary had money. And so she supported Jesus' ministry for three years while he walked on the earth. She was one of the Marys that was at the cross when Jesus hung on the cross. This John Mark was her son. Scholars feel that John Mark went on and he became the Mark who went on the first missionary expedition with Paul and Barnabas. And if you remember right, on that, they got about halfway through the missionary journey and John Mark said, I don't like this anymore, it's too hard, and he ducked out and bolted back for home. When it came around to the next journey, they said, okay, let's go again, and Barnabas wanted to bring Mark along with them. They said, come on, we can, and Paul said, no, right? And Paul did not like this mealy-mouthed, divided, uh, double-minded person. He didn't want him on a trip again. I have no use for that guy. Get him out of my sight. He's a failure and a loser. And Barnabas said, no, no, he's a good dude. We can work it, right? And they got into such an argument that Paul and Barnabas split and didn't go on a missionary journey again. Barnabas picks up John Mark and he takes him. Now, you never hear Barnabas again after that Uh, episode in the New Testament in the book of Acts. But Barnabas was one of the greatest leaders in the early church. And how do we know? Because later in Scripture, you find that Paul writes and says, hey, can you bring me the parchments and my cloak I left behind? And by the way, could you bring me Mark? He's useful to me. Barnabas worked on Mark, worked grace in his life, gave him a chance to go at it again. And later on, Paul says of that same Mark, he's useful to me. And then later, Peter says, my son Mark. So Mark wasn't only with Paul. He winds up in Rome. He ends up with Peter. And Mark ends up writing a little book that we know as the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Peter written by Mark. The same John Mark who looked at Jesus, had to decide to give up, wouldn't do it, and bowed his head and walked away. God can restore anybody, people. Yes, we've all blown it. But the issue isn't if we've blown it. The issue is if we're humble. Will we let him restore us? Will we let it come back? And will we stand firm in fortitude, believing that the final script hasn't been written yet? That's what he's asking. That's what Peter's asking the church. That's what God's asking us. Have fortitude. Stay with it. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because one of the greatest promises in the Bible, he hears you. He's listening to your prayers. That's why we should pray. Let's, let's close. Father, as we do this, thank you so much for Peter and his transparency, Lord. The, the depth of the guy comes out through this epistle, and we have benefited greatly by what he laid out. And as we sit here this morning, Lord, we recognize that uh, there's a lot of things twisting 
and the lines being drawn for who's really committed and who isn't. And Father, we want to be a group of people that are confirmed by you. We want to be a group of people that are established by you. And we know to do that, we've got to humble ourselves. Lord, we can see our pride. We can see our arrogance. We can see the places where we have told you our plan is better than yours. And we have lost because of that. May you help us be a humble, teachable group of people that you can depend on. And may we lean on your grace. And we ask this in your name. Amen.